we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. And those that are in the house, I know that there are a lot of folks that are moving, and uh, you're, you're, you're have all these different things happen in your life. You're looking for a new place to worship. Your kids are going to a new school. And we know it's always hard looking for new stuff, moving to a new community. And some of you actually stumbled into this place called Pathway. We want you to know you're welcome here. We hope you experience God's presence, and we would like to make your stay more comfortable. Uh, when you leave here, right across the point, there's a connection point. We have a gift for you. We'll just give you a gift to say thank you for coming. And we many staff out in the crossing, myself included. Just love to meet you and say hello and connect with you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find them and open them up to the back of your Bible. James, going to chapter 4. We're in the fourth week of a series uh, we're calling How Do I? And so since we're in the fourth week, we're going to chapter 4. Now, we're not skipping chapter 3. I just happened that they got it wrong, that 4 comes before 3 in this particular case. So we're going to 4, and then we're going to go back and do a couple of weeks in 3. And then we're going to wind up in chapter 5, finishing this whole thing up. So instead of a six weeks, it's now going to be a seven-week series. So before we jump into this, let's just open with a word of prayer. God, we are about to open your word, and we have come to understand the importance of just pausing, getting our hearts and minds ready, our souls ready to receive uh, what you want to say. So if you're someone right now who can hear my voice, just wherever you are, would you please just do that? Just get yourself in a posture, your mind, your heart, your spirit, your body, just to receive what God would do this morning. Have your way with us, Jesus. Touch us, heal us, correct us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Before we jump into the morning text in chapter 4, I want to explain something to you, what James is doing here. Uh, in, in every relationship or every organization, every company, you name it, when you l- reduce communication down, there's two basic forms of communication. Conversations, if you would, in com- communication. Conversations. There are feeling conversations and there are problem conversations. In our text today, James wants to have a problem conversation with you and me. Now, a lot of times we get this confused. I know very early in marriage, many of us get feelings and problem solving mixed up. I know I did. When Dallas and I were first married, uh, she'd come to me and she would say something to me about her day. She would share an issue, share a problem, and all, automatically I would jump into it. Oh, yeah, babe, if you do this and you do that, I think if you, if you focus on this, that'll change everything. And so often, after I've got finished solving her problem, she looked at me and would kind of say, you know, Rick, this is not a problem solving conversation. I just kind of need you to know how I feel. I just need you to kind of nod, kind of listen. Don't fix me, thank you. Can you do it? Yeah, got it, got it. Okay, feeling conversation, I got it. So it wasn't too long after that, Dallas gets pregnant. About nine months later after that, we're going to go to the hospital, have a baby. She's two weeks past due. She's in miserable. She's miserable. This baby's coming whether it wants to or not. And so they start inducing her. 
And after 22 hours of inducing, my wife has still not made much progress in the delivery of this kid. And she's in extreme pain. She is miserable. She doesn't do pain. My wife doesn't like pain. I mean, who likes pain? My wife really doesn't like pain. She has my hand in a vice grip. I mean, she's just sweating. She's just squeezing it. And she says, Ricky, I can't handle this anymore. I need some help. I need you to do something. Get a doctor. And I said, babe, I hear you. I feel you. I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> now, I will tell you, there were a lot of feelings being expressed, but that was not a feeling conversation. That was a problem-solving conversation. And I even made it a bigger problem by how I responded. James here is having a problem-solving conversation. Now, here's what I know. James, in this text, is going to be very direct. He's going to hold no punches. He's going to be very practical, but he's going to also come across as a little bit harsh. But James, this morning, is going to try to help you and me solve a key problem in our life. Now, here's another thing that I know. Most of us, when you come to worship, even joining us online here or watching the middle of the week, you bring your problem with you to worship. Right now, you're thinking about a problem you have. Maybe it's a career problem. Maybe you're thinking about Monday already. You're thinking about the stress of a situation you have at work. Maybe it's a relationship problem that will just not seem to get better. Maybe it's a financial problem. The weight of debt just never seems to leave, and especially with the stock market so crazy and prices going up, you're just kind of, oh, what's going to happen? Maybe you have a hurt, you have a habit, you have a hang-up, you can't shake. You got a problem, and you brought it with you. Some of you, maybe, you came to worship this morning trying to avoid your problem. You come here, try to block out all your problems and try to break it out. And all of a sudden you look around and you realize your problem's sitting right next to you. Your problem's always with you. Regardless, we all come and we all have these different sort of problems. James, in the text, is talking to a community of people who have lots of problems. We've talked about them. They have a problem when they're going through a trial. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, why are all these bad things happening to me? Why? They have a problem with their mouth. They're very quick to speak, slow to listen. They get angry, and their mouth gets them in trouble a lot. I know nobody here has that problem. We've learned that they have a favoritism problem, that they look at some people differently because of how they dress or their jobs they have or the house they have or the car they have or their reputation or the, uh, the identity they have in the community, and they just kind of overlook the downtrodden in other people. So these folks have a whole lot of problems, and today James is going to address another problem. We call it conflicts and division in the church. And, God, and James is going to use these issues of conflict and division in the church to take them into a deeper journey than they want to go. And he's going to provide a deep diagnosis about something going on in their life. And I'm going to suggest this morning at a very high level what James is identifying that's going on the real problem in their lives. That same problem is happening in you and me. 
If you'll join me there in your notes, if you're taking notes, I have a bigger problem than what I think is my problem. That's what James is going to say here. Hey, folks, you have a problem that's really bigger than what you think is your problem. No matter what problem right now you're most worried about, no matter what problem you brought with you here into this space this morning, you have a problem that is much bigger than your most immediate problem. And James starts with a question in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Why are you fighting? Why are you bickering? Now, if you know anything of the, Old Te- of the New Testament church, the early church, you know that fighting and bickering, conflicts and divisions were very common in the early church. They fought about all sorts of stuff. They fought about who they were going to follow. Who was the best teacher? Who's the right teacher? Should this person be our teacher? Should this person be our teacher? They fought about, they fought about interpretation of the scriptures, of really what the Bible is saying, the Old Testament scriptures. They just disagreed about it. They argued and fought about what it really meant to be a follower of Jesus. Are you glad in our world today there are no churches that have this issues they're facing today? Yeah. That's exactly what's going on here. Same thing today. And James, you need to understand, at this time, is one of the most prominent leaders in the church. That meant he would know everything that's going on. He knew what they were fighting about. He knew what they were quarreling about. He knew all the sides of every issue, who was over here and who was over here. He could actually walk around 363 and he could speak to every issue from their perspective. He knew it inside and out. But once you notice in the text, James doesn't seem to be interested at all on what they're fighting about or why they are fighting. Doesn't even mention it. He seems that there's something deeper. There's a bigger problem than you realize beneath the surface that's going on here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He continues, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's redefining, he's changing the focus from focusing what's going on on the outside to what's going on the inside. And he answers with a question. Notice there in verse 1, he asks a question, and the second thing he does is he answers the question by another question. Whenever you're reading the Bible or you're having a conversation with someone and they ask a question and they answer it with their own question, they're making a point. They're making a point. So Dallas told me several, uh, um, three years ago, maybe, I guess it was a summer, three years ago, hey, listen, on this weekend in August, I'm going out of town with my friends. We're having a friend trip. I said, okay. She said, put it on your calendar. I said, okay. Several weeks later, I discover I'm going to be off that weekend. So I go to Dallas. I say, hey, babe, I'm not teaching that particular weekend. So why don't you and I go out and do something crazy like out to eat and a movie, have a romantic night out, just you and me, just focus on us. How about that? She said, I told you. Don't you remember? Didn't you put it on your calendar? I'm going to be gone that particular weekend. So she asked me a question. And then she followed up with another question. She was telling me, this is not a feeling conversation. This is a problem conversation. She was making a point. We got to get this fixed. James follows it up with a question. 
He's making it a point. And here's the point. Yes, you desire, you fight, you have all these quarrels, you have all this stuff going on in the church, but you need to understand, it's not just about what's happening out there, it's what's happening, he says the last two words, within you. You're not just frustrated because somebody else has bad theology. He's saying you're not all upset because somebody's interpreted the Bible to mean this and you think it means that. Say, so you're not upset because someone has said something to hurt your feelings that disagrees with you. He is saying that your problem is not out there. Your problem is something going on in here. Number two, my real problem is in my inner life. He is refocusing their focus, what they're focusing on. He's saying, what if the real issue is not what's happening out here? What if the real issue is not what she said, not what he did, not what they're doing, not what they decided, but what if the real issue is in your soul, something deep in your spirit that's askew? Are you brave enough, he's asking, are you brave enough to stop focusing on what's going on out there with everybody else, and are you willing to take the journey and look at what's going on inside of you. That's what he's saying. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Verse 2, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Scholars agree this was not a metaphor, that in this day in the church, they would start quarreling and start arguing so much with each other that some people actually died. Church people killing church people. Church people throwing grenades at other church people. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen in the United States of America today? Quarreling and bickering and hurting and killing and harming everybody. And then he goes on. You, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and you fight. He's saying there are these appetites and these desires that are deep inside of you, deep within your soul, and they drive your life and you're not even aware of it. Here's, here, here's what I want you to know, that some of you, you think that your behaviors, your actions, and your emotions are all based on what somebody else does. The circumstances of what somebody else is doing and saying. And I know this is true because you say stuff like this to each other and to people in the world. You make me so angry. They make me so mad. They just bring out the worst in me. I only said that. I only did this because they did that. Because they said that. And James is saying, listen, that's not the problem. The reason you're fighting and the reason you have all this conflict and the reason you're having all these struggles is that you have these desires, you have this envy that you covet deep within you, things that they have that you don't have, things that they're in charge of that you don't have inside of you. You covet, you envy, you desire, and you don't even realize it. Kind of like this little video right here.
You covet. You desire. You do not have. So you kill. We laugh when somebody else's kids are acting that way. Not our kids. But it's not so funny when grown-ups, adults, who still behave that way, even though we find a way to mask it and to hide it. And James is saying, well, began just a little desire within you just for something. All of a sudden now becomes somebody else has it. Somebody else thinks they're right. Somebody else is in control. Somebody else, and that's become a barrier to your success. You giving control and power to somebody else. They have something you want or need. And because of that, you're all bent out of shape. And Paul is saying there's something deep within your soul. This is not a feeling conversation. This is a problem conversation. And there is a problem when you allow coveting and envy, envy gets deep embedded within your soul. Bad things happen. Jacob envied Esau, so he stole his birthright. Rachel envied Leah's children, so she had her husband lay down and have kids by her maid servant. Joseph's brothers envied the relationship Joseph had with his dad. They beat him. They threw him in a well. They sold him as a slave. James is saying, you fight, you quarrel, you bicker because you crave power. You crave influence. You crave to be thought of as being right. You crave to be in control. Your heart is full of envy of things that you're out of control that you want that you're not getting. That's what he's saying. I would like to ask you to take a little moment here to, to look into your own heart. What's going on in your own heart right now? with some of the problems, some of the issues that you find yourself facing in your life. Sometimes I look at my heart and I'm aware of how I'm behaving, how I'm acting, how I'm feeling, that there's actually something in my heart that I think I should have that I don't have or what's going to happen when I don't have it and I get all bent out of shape and I get worried and I can start panicking and I start acting and misbehaving in all these sorts of different ways. This is a problem conversation. It's not a feeling conversation. And then James says, you know what? I've not even touched the real problem yet. I'm not even come close. He goes on at the end of verse 2. So you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Hey, you do not have because you do not ask God. Sometimes is that... Besides me, define anybody's prayer life. Hey, I don't have because I don't ask God. Hey, I'm busy. I don't have time to ask God. I got to make this decision quick. I got to get on with the program. I got meetings. I got appointments. I got people to talk to. I got things to do. I don't have time. I don't involve God. Besides, if I ask God, he probably wouldn't do it the way I wanted to anyway. That's the next question right there. The problem he says, when you ask, you don't receive. You ask with the wrong motives because we don't ask God for wisdom. We don't say, God, would you teach me? We say, God, 
This is the way it needs to happen. They need to do this. They need to do that. This needs to be the outcome. God, will you do it? This, see, even when we pray, we're telling God what to do. That's what he's saying. And then, then he goes on. And then that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. That's an interesting little phrase right there. Very similar phrase over in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus is telling the story about the man who goes to his dad, says, hey, dad, would you please give me my whole inheritance so I can go spend it all on my own pleasure? This is not a feeling conversation. This is a problem conversation. And James is saying the problem is not the conflict that you're having with others. It's not these unmet needs and desires that you have that you don't think you're getting what you want from the other person. Number three, my bigger problem is my life revolves around me. That's the big problem. See, sometimes I think because we, we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, you said yes to Jesus, and you come to church on Sunday mornings on a regular basis, that that means that our heart that our heart is okay. But with the things that you say out loud about God and the frequency of your religious activity does not always reflect what's going on in your heart. In fact, I would suggest that most of us, we only love God to the extent that God gives us what we love. I'm going to repeat that. We only love God to the extent that God gives us what we love. We say, in essence, God, I'll be faithful to you, God, to the extent that you are faithful to me. God, if you give me that career, if you give me that woman, if you give me that man, if you give me that child, if you give me that financial security, if you'll take away this depression, if you'll take this away, then I will be faithful to you. In other words, it's really all about me. It's about what I want, what I need, what I think. And then he goes on in the text. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? See, when, 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 I, when I grew up, this idea of friendship with the world was talking about taboo sins. Taboo sins. Don't drink. Don't hang out with the wrong people. Don't have premarital sex. If you just stay away from drugs, sex, and rock and roll, you'll be okay. Taboo sins. Friends of the world. James is not talking about that at all. He's saying, you know what? There's something wrong with your heart. What really matters most to you? What's, what's in your heart? I want to show you this little idea about primary concerns in your life, about life concerns. When you look at your life, your life can be thought of as having three circles in your life. 
And the exterior circle is the peripheral circle, peripheral concerns. That you have these peripheral concerns of your life that you think about. You got to clean the house. You got to pay the bills. You got to take care of the mortgage. You got laundry to do. You got to cook the meals, so forth and so forth. Very important things. And then on the inside of that, you have primary concerns or the closer core to your life. These are things that are really important to you. They really matter to you. It's your family. It's your friends. It's your financial health. It's your physical health. It's security. All those hierarchy of needs. Very important thing. But James is saying there's also a deeper level to your core, and that is your core. That is what matters most. In the core of your being, at the very heart of who you are, that's what matters most to you. What matters most in here, in the heart? That's what you see in the heart, what matters most. And most of you right now, you're in church, and you're going to say, I'll tell you what matters most. Yeah, Pastor, God matters most to me. The greatest temptation of anybody who says they're a Christian is in your heart, it's God and something else. It's God and my career. It's God and my financial security. It's God and my relationships being satisfied. It's God and my future. It's God and my physical health. It's God and my children. It's God and me being in control of everything being exactly in the right place and people behaving and acting the way I think people ought to act and behave. It's me being right and God. He says, you adulterous people. There's somebody besides God in the core of your heart. You're stepping out on God. You're cheating on God. You're playing around with other gods. You're two-timing God. Maybe it's for you, it's God and your vocational success. Maybe for you, it's God and the way other people see you, what they think about. Maybe it's your bucket list. Maybe your bucket list is what's in the core of you. I got to do all these things before I die. Maybe it's your comfort. Maybe it's God and your financial security. And those are not all bad things. Those are really good primary concerns. But when they become at the center of your heart, they become an idol. And in the Bible, an idol is not some little gold statue that you place in your home and you bow down and worship. An idol is anything that becomes a substitute for God in the center of your core that is in your heart. That is what matters most to me. And James is saying, beneath the conflict, beneath the quarrels, beneath the bickering, beneath the lobbying of bombs and blaming and shaming other people, there's another core issue of what really matters most to you. And I'm suggesting it's not God. What matters most to you is you. And you being right, and you being in charge. And so you complain, and you get in conflict, and you draw lines in the sand, and you pout, and you slam doors, and you post all this outlandish stuff about other people, other things on Facebook. You whine, you whine. And you think they're the problem, and he's saying, would you please look into your soul that your life is revolving around you? What you think, what you want, what you feel, what you think is right. 
That's what he's saying. This is not a feeling conversation. This is a problem-solving conversation. And you got a problem, and I got a problem, and the problem is I can't fix the problem. Because if I'm the problem, how can I fix it? How can I fix myself? How can you fix you? You can't. You can't do it. So what do we do? In your notes, my biggest problem identified, big, bold, capital letters, all caps, is me. Me. My big problem is my sin issue. It's me. Me. My sin. That's the big that's the biggest problem that I have, and there's nothing I can do about it. That, that's, that's the problem. I can't do something about it. I can't fix it. Over in Romans chapter 7, one of the most greatest leaders in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul, he says this about himself. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, inside of me, hey, I delight in God's law. I think that God's in my heart, in my core, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, how I behave, how I feel, how I act, how I lash out, how these statements I make, making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within me, in me, not out there in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Who will solve this problem that I have? And then he says, verse 25, thanks be to God. I want you to get this. In the depth of I am wretched, I am awful, I am terrible, I can't fix this problem. He finds his way to burst out into thanksgiving. But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You got a problem and you can't solve it. And all the therapy and all the politics and all the certain perfection, the way you think the world's supposed to be, is not going to solve it. Jesus has solved my biggest problems by his grace. I, I love this book, I love these six verses. I love it. I mean, James is laying it on, 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 laying it on. Then he gets down to verse 6. He set it up so beautifully. Down in verse 6, he says, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Church, this is a big deal. If you are acutely aware that you have a problem that you cannot solve, this is good news. James doesn't hold back. He says, you fight, you quarrel, you kill each other, you battle, you make all these outlandish statements. You do not have, you don't even talk to God about it. And when you ask, you ask these selfish motives. It's all about you so you can have what you want on your own pleasure. You're an adulterous people. You're a friend of the world, but I'm going to give you grace. Is that, does anybody like the sound of that besides me? Grace. If you do not know who Jesus is, if you're here this morning and you're watching online and you're not even sure if you believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus, I will tell you, this is exactly who Jesus is and why he came to earth and why he died on the cross. 
to offer you grace. He didn't come to solve all your little petty little problems. He didn't come to solve who's right and who's wrong on all the issues that go to the Supreme Court. He came to solve your biggest issue and to offer grace. To who? To the atheist. If you're here this morning and you don't even believe there is a God, there's grace for you. If you're a skeptic, there's grace for you. If you're someone who's hurt somebody so bad they will never talk to you again, there's grace for you. If you stepped out of your marriage, there's grace for you. If you've been a parent that messed up and screwed up and you've been absentee parent or absentee grandparent, there's grace for you. There's grace for you. And sometimes people say, Pastor, that sounds so, like it waters it all down, this Christian faith thing. It waters it down. Like it makes it so wishy-washy, so easy. It just lowers the bar. Can I tell you, it doesn't lower the bar. It, it just clarifies who holds the bar. And it's not you. You don't hold the bar. Jesus holds the bar. There's no other name under heaven by a man may be saved, but through Jesus, and he holds the bar. He decides who is judged and who is set free, who is held accountability and who receives mercy and who receives grace. He decides who gets in and who doesn't. And he says, I'm going to give you more grace. That's what he says, grace. What do you say? And he came to give it to you and 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 online to you. You know the hardest thing about this thing called grace? The hardest thing, the biggest problem with grace is not in your notes. The biggest problem with grace for most people is they don't know how to receive it. Don't know how to receive it. There's only one way. There's only one way. James points it out right here, verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud. God stands against anybody who says, this is my life. I can do it the way I want. I can fix myself. I can handle it. I don't need anybody. I can do it on my own. I don't need any church people, anybody I, I telling me what to do or telling me I can do it by myself. I got it. It says, God stands against the proud. But then he quotes, he says, but God shows favor. God shows grace to the humble. I got a problem. I can't fix it. I keep doing the darn things I don't want to do. I don't want to. I just get. And if that's you, that's a position of humility. You're a candidate for grace. If you humble yourself, if you can let go of your pride, 
if you can stop trying to be in control of every single situation in your life and the people in your life, stop trying to tell everybody what's right and what's wrong and you be the judge and jury, if you can lower your pride and just humble yourself, you're a candidate for grace. But until you do, you're going to find yourself frustrated. Just <laughs> Back in 2005, I was a part of the Burson Chamber of Commerce. And while I was on that Chamber of Commerce, I met a young man that was a banker, an uprising banker here in Burson. He was very smart, very intellectual. He and I started going to have coffee together. We became friends. And in this coffee experience, I found that he was a committed atheist. And he felt like that anybody who was a Christian was somebody who didn't think. They just drank the Kool-Aid. They were naive. He was so intellectual. The conversations we had were amazing. We talked about sociology. We talked about psychology. He was so smart. We talked about theology, even though he wasn't a believer. We talked about eschatology. We talked about, we talked about cosmetology. We talked about all the ologies. We just talked about everything that was ology, we talked about it. And he could talk about it. And he loved to play stump the pastor. His goal was to bring up questions that I couldn't adequately resolve for him and just to kind of see, see, see. And he was great. He, he won the game most of the time. And I thought he won so much he would get tired of it. He would stop going out to have coffee with me. But he didn't stop. We just kept on having coffee. And I just kept on listening to him. And I learned about why he was so smart and why he was so self-assured and so independent. I learned about his family. I learned about his dad. I learned about the controlling nature of the home in which he lived. I heard the stories of what people said to him as a little child. And I figured that's why he went to that university and said, I'm going to make something of myself and nobody's going to take it away. Nobody's going to say that to me again or do that to me again. I'm going to be in control and I'm going to not need anybody else but me. And I thought, man, there's this ne he's, he's never going to come to church. He's never going to come. It was back St. Matthew back then. He's never going to do it. He's so smart, so knows it all. Well, about a year after that, the Burleson Chamber of Commerce and the Burleson Ministerial Alliance partnered with the Billy Graham Association, and we brought Will Graham, Billy Graham's grandson, to Burleson for a crusade. And I asked my banker friend, I said, would you like to go with me? He said, yeah, I'll go to see the circus. So he comes. And Will Graham preached a message. And at the end of that message, he said, if you would like to come down here and receive grace, just come down here and kneel. Just come down here. And I thought, well, that's not happening. He's so self-assured, so confident, so, and it really wasn't that good of a sermon. I mean, when something that would just stir you and everything, I mean, it was okay. It was okay, but I was like, man, I mean, he didn't say anything he and I hadn't talked about. He refuted, refuted, refuted. I'll be, that go. He got up and started walking down the steps over at BISD, walked the long walk to the field, and I thought, I can't believe this. And so I got up and followed him. I'm just going to walk with him. And he gets down there. He goes down to his knees, and he says, God, I don't even know if I believe in you. This grace thing, I'm not even sure if you can hear me right now, God. 
But if you can hear me, I could use some of that grace. Listen, there's only one way to receive grace. And it's not by trying harder. And it's not by knowing this Bible and being able to prove it to somebody inside and out. And it's not by coming to a bunch of religious activities. There's only one way. And this is it. It's me. Broken. Needy. Fragile. Self-centered. Self-focused. All about me. I sure could use some grace. I want to invite you this morning to have a conversation as we end up. If you're online, wherever you are during the week watching us, to have a different conversation with God. And Because uh, there's grace down here. In this place right here, there's redemption, there's restoration, there's life down here. Some of you think, well, well Pastor, I prayed to God so many times. Now, I'm not sure he can hear me or respond to me. I promise you, when you come to this place right here of humility... And you ask for grace, God always hears and answers that prayer. That's why He came in the form of Jesus for this. So I'm going to invite you right where you are to get in a position of humility, change your posture. Maybe you're going to sit right there, you're going to take your hands and place them on your lap and raise them up. Maybe that's you. I want you to block out the person next to you. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Shut out every person around you. You and God and just my voice to help you just for a minute. A position of humility. Maybe you want to actually slip out of your chair into the aisle or right there in front of your chair and just go to your knees. Somebody to help you up. You have the chair to help you up. God to help you up. But you know, more than anything, you just need to go to your knees and say, I'm tired of trying to fix everything on my own. I want to make you a promise. God did not send Jesus to send to, to solve all of your problems your laundry list of problems. He came to solve the one problem you cannot solve by standing on your own two feet, but only when you go to your knees. And ask for grace. So if you'd like to, just repeat after me right there where you're kneeling or sitting. God, I don't know if you can hear me. That grace sounds pretty good. And I could use some grace. God, we thank you for loving us so much that you left heaven, the riches and the power of heaven. You came to earth. And God, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for emptying yourself and taking the very nature of a servant and meeting us down here where we can receive mercy and we can receive grace and we can receive hope and we can receive restoration. Thank you, thank you, thank you for becoming like us, broken, bruised, and battered by this world. 
And thank you, God, that on the third day, after he died upon the cross for our sins, that you raised him into heaven, that you might raise us up from our place of humility into a life that is rich and wonderful and full because we're now walking and living in grace. Receiving it and giving it. Thank you. Jehovah Jireh. For grace. In Jesus' name. I think I'm going to linger down here after worship. I know you need to leave. But if there's anybody here that needs prayer, just need to say something in the ear to be able to really walk out of here, just having left it here. I'm going to hang out just, just in case. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.